Oh, Father, indeed, every praise is to you. Every word of worship is to you. Forgive us, Lord, if we have praised anything in your place. Forgive us if we have worshipped anything besides you. For you alone are God. You are the creator of the heavens and the earth. You are the, the maker of mankind. You are the giver of life. You are the author of our salvation. You are the great and glorious God reigning above and coming in that glory. So every word of worship is to you, our God. Every praise is to you. And we ask, Father, that you would speak to us this morning by your word in the power of your spirit that we might behold you, that we might see your beauty, that we might stand amazed at your splendor, that we might come to know you perhaps for the first time or to know you more deeply. And knowing you might have the joy of your salvation flood our souls. Show us yourself, we pray. Teach us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, you've, you've chosen a great time to start coming, uh, and particularly to get to know us as a church, because we are this morning continuing in our series through what we believe is a church, through our series uh, on our statement of faith. We use here as a way of summarizing what the Bible teaches and what we believe as Christians what's called the Second London Baptist Confession, written in the late 1600s, 1689. Uh, and it frames up and summarizes uh, a number of um, important points of Christian belief and teaching. And this morning, we're in what's called chapter 4 uh, on God's creation, that, that God creates. And so if you look in your bulletins there, uh, you should have that chapter printed inside your bulletin on the next to the last page. And we're going to start this morning by reading this together uh, and confessing this together uh, as a church. You'll see it there on page 10, at three short paragraphs uh, called Creation. And we'll just start reading from the first paragraph there. Read together with me. In the beginning, it pleased the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to create the world and all things in it in six days. All was very good. In this way, God glorified his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. All creatures were made by God, the last to be fashioned being man and woman, who received dominion over all other creatures on the earth. God gave man and woman rational and immortal souls and in all respects fitted them for a life in harmony with himself. They were created in his image, possessing knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. The divine law was written in their hearts and they had power to obey it fully. Yet being left to the liberty of their own mutable wills, transgression of the law was a possibility." The law of God in general was written in the hearts of the first human pair, but at the same time, they were placed under a special prohibition not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
their happiness and fellowship with God depended upon their yielding obedience to his will, as also did the continuance of their dominion over the creatures. Well, this is the statement from chapter 4 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And if you look there, you'll see a number of references to the scripture below it. Uh, and many of those references are to Genesis 1 and 2. And so turn with me in your Bibles there to Genesis 1 and 2, because that's where we find um, God's acts of creation most clearly spelled out for us. Now, if you've thought at all about creation and thought about God, chances are you have some questions. Questions that maybe you have had since you were a little child. So, for example, our first question, we're going to consider four this morning. Our first question is a question that my son Titus asked me about a week and a half ago. I came home from work and came into the house and Christy promptly said, Titus has a question for you. Now, he had asked her the question, but she thought she'd save it for me, right? So, Titus has a question for you. And that question was, who made God? That's the first question we want to consider. Who made God? Second question we want to ask and answer is a question that Christians have been discussing for a very long time, sometimes with fevered pitch. And it's another kind of question that, you know, we have from the time we're young. And that's this. How old is the earth? Who made God? How old is the earth? Number three, this is a question I've had since I was a little boy, I will confess. Where is the Garden of Eden? Anybody else had that question? I can tell. You laugh. Say, all right, thank you for being honest, Ms. Lois. Raise your hand. And number four, a question I'm sure that we've all considered, what is God's purpose for my life? Four questions. Who created God? How old is the earth? Where is the Garden of Eden? What is God's purpose for my life? Everything you ever wanted to know about the book of Genesis in one sermon, right? Not, not really. Not really. But to start, we want to start where the Bible starts. We'll start with that first question, who created God? It's a question that many young people in particular will ask, and even some older folks that we've said before, and the question has a certain logic to it. And the logic is this, if something is made, then there must be a maker, right? And, and particularly with a young person's mind, about the age of Titus, was about eight, you know, you, you kind of do the infinite regress. Well, if the earth was made, there was a maker. And if the maker was there, then somebody must have made the maker. And who made the maker? Who made the maker? And on and on and on and on, right? But the most wonderful, most powerful, most brilliant sentence in all of literature is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Look with me at that sentence. Yeah, we should know it by heart, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is an explosive sentence. You know, folks who write novels and, and short stories, they're always sort of after the perfect first sentence, how to start the story. And here, God now, who doesn't struggle like a novelist and doesn't struggle to find words, he begins his book with the perfect first sentence, and he makes himself the subject. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The heavens and the earth there, of course, refers to everything in creation. We would use the word universe. There's no such word in the Hebrew. So you refer to the heavens above and the earth beneath. Everything above, everything beneath, everything in between. This God who announces himself in the first sentence of biblical literature is the one who created it. Now, this explodes into our minds in the form of an answer to our question. Who created God? No one created God. God has always been and he will always be. Notice there, it's in the beginning that God created. And in fact, the very concept of the beginning is the creation of God. He creates time. He starts things. And, and before there was a start, on the other side of go, it's God. Always existing. And in fact, this, this one verse tells us many things about the very nature of God himself, doesn't it? If in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then there is but one God. Notice it doesn't say God's plural. There's no pantheon. There's no, there's no family of gods. There is but one God, singular, and he created the heavens and the earth. And he teaches his people to declare their truth about him from, from the earliest days. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. There is one God and no others. But it teaches us also that God is eternal. That, that he has always existed. He has no beginning and no end. That's what eternal means. He always exists and he will never stop existing. Psalm chapter 90 verse 2. The psalmist writes there, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From vanishing point past to vanishing point future, from everlasting to everlasting, God, you are God. He's eternal. It's not going anywhere. And Genesis 1-1 also infers that God is not only one and not only eternal, but he's also complete. He depends on nothing else for his existence. He existed before there was anything else. And he existed complete and whole and satisfied and joyful in himself. And so in the words that uh, our sister read so wonderfully before in the reading from Acts chapter 17, 24 and 25, you can write these down. Listen, listen to what, what the Bible says about God there. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's not served by our hands. If by served we mean he is helped to exist. He does not depend upon us for, for anything. He himself is the one who gives life and has made everything. And Genesis 1-1, does this not suggest to us that this God is powerful? He's powerful. He creates, as the theologians say, ex nihilo. 
just a fancy little $10 word that means out of nothing. He creates out of nothing. That's what the Hebrew word bara here means, translated in English, created, to create from nothing. There was, there was nothing, and God spoke. And in consequence of his speaking, things that did not exist obeyed him and leapt into existence. It's powerful. And this is why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.3, which I pointed to earlier in, in that great chapter, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. When we talk about our being creative, well, we're people who start with stuff. You know, if we're potters, we got to have clay. You know, if we're artists, we got to have brush and paints and things of that sort. We don't create stuff out of nothing. But God, before the beginning, before anything existed, spoke and worlds exploded into existence. He's a speaking God. He's a powerful God. He's an eternal God. Why does this matter? I think it matters for at least two reasons. First, it matters because it tells us that there are some ways of approaching the world and approaching life that cannot be reconciled even with the first verse of the Bible. Atheism does not square with the Bible. Dualism, the idea that there are two gods wrestling with each other, one good and, and one bad, does not square with the Bible. But God is God alone, and there is no rival to his claim upon his creation and his power demonstrated in creation. Atheism, dualism, pantheism is ruled out. The idea that everything is God and God is in everything. No, God is different from his creation. He exists apart from his creation. He does not depend upon his creation. The creation depends upon him. Materialism. Philosophical materialism. The idea that matter has always existed. This is the sleight of hands that many atheists will try. They will, they will say when you ask them the child's question, who created the world, they, they will begin with the world already existing. You say, no, 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 no. How did it get here? Well, matter has always existed. No, 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 no. You cannot assign the qualities of deity to the creation. No, materialism holds no water in the face of Genesis 1.1. And all the pagan myths and all the rival views of God are all vanquished, are all put down, are all defied by Genesis 1.1. And our view of the world and our view of life doesn't begin to be right until we apprehend Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, the only eternal, powerful, great God created the heavens and the earth and is Lord of it all. But as a second reason this matters for us, God's eternal existence and God's sovereign creation of the universe matter because if God could stop existing, then nothing could ever be certain. If God himself could weaken or God himself could die, if God could cease to exist, we would have no grounds for being confident in anything. 
What does the writer of Hebrews tell us? He tells us that, that God in Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. He spoke and the worlds came into existence and it's by his word that the worlds continue to revolve and to spin and the sun continues to rise and to set and seas rise and lower. It's by his word that the atoms in your body act the way they're supposed to act. If for an inkling, this God ceased to exist, so would all of us. So would all of creation. But because God never changes and always is, we can trust him. We can depend upon it. He is, as we said before, from everlasting to everlasting. He is, as the writer says, the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And he is, as the psalmist says in Psalm 121, he never slumbers nor sleeps. If you like, put your, keep your finger in Genesis 1 and turn to the 121st Psalm. Psalm 121, verses 1 to 4. And hear how the psalmist takes this idea that God is creator who never slumbers and sleeps and he rests the hopes of Israel on those truths. Psalm 121 verses 1 to 4. A song, really. You will know many of these words. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Verse 2, my help comes from the Lord. Who is that? Who made heaven and earth. Verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Do you see? The psalmist sees quite clearly, he's quite confident that because God is maker and God is the one who keeps us, we can trust him. We can trust him. He's not going to sleep on the job. He's not going to slumber. He's not going to sleep. Not for one moment is he going to lose his grip on us. He is our help. Our help comes from him. So we can trust him who made us to also keep us. Your foot, if your hope is in God, will not slip. You will not lose your footing and fall because God will make you stand. And this is why Genesis 1-1 is so critical and so important. And we've celebrated this since the time of David and the Psalms. We celebrate this in all of our great hymns, our cherished hymns, in, in one respect or another. I couldn't help but think of, I ain't going to sing it for you, don't worry. I couldn't help but think of God's unchanging hand. You know the words, time is filled with swift transition. It almost makes you sing it. <laughs> Not on earth unmoved can stand. Huh? Build your hopes on things eternal. Do what? Hold to God's unchanging hand. You better hold to his hands. Talking about God's unchanging. You better hold to his hand. God's unchanging hands. Build your hopes on things eternal. Hold to God's unchanging hands. I better stop while I'm ahead. <laughs> you see, this idea is as practical as holding God's hand, as trusting him and believing that he will keep you 
even though time is filled with swift changes and transitions, or even as verse 2 says, trust in him who will not leave you, whatsoever years may bring, if by earthly friends forsaken, still more closely to him cling. This is the God of Genesis 1-1. You can trust this God who was never made, but who made you. He does not change. He is all-powerful. And as your maker, he knows what you need. Trust him. Depend upon him. Which brings us to our second question. How old is the earth? How old is the earth? This is a question that Christians today argue about with a, a lot of energy. They, they debate this question with each other, and they debate the question with non-Christians too, with secular scientists. This is a question that we will gladly argue about, many of us, for a long time. And there are three basic answers to this question, how old is the earth? First, there's the kind of what's called the young earth view. That view says that the earth is about seven to 10,000 years old. And they arrive at this view by taking the six days of creation from Genesis 1-2 down to the end of chapter 1 um, and, and sort of saying these are six literal days. And then they look at the genealogies in, in Genesis and they, they come up with uh, a chronology that's about seven to 10,000 years old depending on uh, one or two things. And so they argue that modern science is wrong in its calculation of the age of the earth. Now the second view is called old earth. It's an old earth view held by many sincere Christians, faithful Christians. And they argue that the six days of creation in Genesis 1, 2 and following um, are not literal days, but they are day ages. That the Hebrew word there, yom, uh, can be translated as a literal 24-hour period, but it can also be translated age. And they would argue if we understand these as ages and we understand Genesis 1 in part as poetry, then there's no contradiction between the Bible and science at all for what we have here is a sort of age theory on the creation of the earth. And so they would argue without affixing a date that the, eight, the earth is quite old. And then thirdly, there's the kind of secular science view. And these folks don't care what the Bible says, <laughs> right? They argue based upon carbon dating and based upon physics and the speed of light and how far light is traveled and all kinds of things like that, that the earth must be somewhere around 4.5 billion, would it be, billion years old. Now you can see why there's so much debate, can't you? Because 7,000 and 4.5 billion are really wildly different numbers, aren't they? But I think there are two significant problems with each of those positions. The first is that the, the, each of those positions begins to sort of mess up when they fail to realize what kind of literature Genesis is. So you ask yourself the question, did Moses set out to write in the book of Genesis a science textbook? Well, no. Okay, well, did Moses set out to write uh, an exhaustive history of, of how God created everything? Well, no. Well, if this is not science and this is not history, but what is it? How are we to understand this literature? What's the nature of this literature? Well, I want to argue that it's theological history. That, that Moses' main point is to tell us true things about how God created the world, but what he most wants us to see is the God who created the world. So this book is primarily about theology, not about history, not about science, even though it makes true historical and scientific claims rightly understood. So those views get off into arguing about which view is most consistent or most authoritative scientifically or historically, 
But Moses is arguing which God is most authoritative. Right? Here's the second thing. Uh, these books, I think, or these positions uh, also begin to sort of make a mistake, in, particularly in the Christian views, how they understand Genesis 1-2 and its relationship to Genesis 1-1. So most views, young earth creation, old earth creation, many of them understand that Genesis 1-2 down through the end of Genesis chapter 1 is a further explanation of the details as to how God created in Genesis 1-1. So 1-1 is the summary statement. Verses 2 and following is the unpacking of that. That's, that's been a long-standing kind of view. But there's an older view. It's the older view of historical creationism, which goes back and was held by many Jews as, as late as or early as the 3rd and 2nd century B.C. It goes back to Augustine, one of the greatest uh, theologians of the church. Historical creationism basically makes this argument. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, what you get is the creation of the entire universe. Notice there at the end, he created the heavens and the earth. All that was created, God created in that summary statement. But you'll notice that the Bible goes on to say something like this in our English translations, that the earth was without form and void. Darkness covered it, right? Two things. One is how we translate without form and void. It's a common English translation that may have more to do with the kind of Greek myths in which the English translations were existing during the time of the English translations than it does with the actual Hebrew words themselves. So, how did those Jews in 300 BC, 200 BC interpret this? How did Augustine inter interpret those words? Let me give it to you real quickly. Those, those little words, those two Hebrew words there, that are normally translated without form and void in our English Bibles might be more literally translated wilderness and uninhabited. That the earth was desolate and it wasn't fit to sustain life. It wasn't fit to sustain humanity that God had in mind to create. And the interesting thing is those two Hebrew words, they are translated that way in the rest of the Bible, as wilderness and desolate. So, for example, when uh, the Bible tells us about Israel wandering in the wilderness, for example, in Deuteronomy 32.10, it uses these very words and it translates it as wilderness. But we all, if we know our Bible stories, know that, that Israel for 40 years wandered where? In the wilderness. It's these very words. Or in Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 23 to 26, Jeremiah tells us about Israel's exile from the promised land, and, and the land is described as a consequence of their exile as being unlivable and wilderness-like. So if we were going to be consistent with the translation of Genesis 1, 1 and 2, with how we translate these words in the rest of the Bible, then I think what the Bible's telling us it's not that verse 2 begins a further explanation of how God created, but verse 2 begins an explanation of how God ordered and made his creation from verse 1 inhabitable. And so verses 2 through the rest of the chapter are not God creating everything again in six days. It's God preparing the land in six days. 
ordering the land in six days. Let me, let me read this. Verse 2. And God said, let there be light. Or excuse me, that's verse 3. So it helps if you can read numbers. Verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven or sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, and each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. 
and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day, chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, how does what I was saying earlier help us in our understanding of the age of the earth? Well, if it's true that verse 2 through the end of the chapter, which uses a different word for created in the Hebrew, it uses a word that is not ex nihilo, bara, but asa, which is more like making up your bed. There's stuff in there, the pillows are kicked all around, the sheets are sort of spread over, and someone says, go make up your bed, you go and you put it in order. That's the word that's used for created after verse 2. Well, if this is true, that he creates the universe in verse 1 of chapter 1, and in verses 2 and following, he's actually preparing what he has created in six days for habitation, then it helps us in at least a couple of ways. One is, it reminds us that the Bible, I should have said this at the beginning in answer to the question, how old is the earth? The Bible doesn't say. There's a long way of saying the Bible doesn't say. I'm sorry it took me so long to get there. The Bible doesn't say there's a single text in all the scripture that says in an unequivocal way, this is how old the earth is. But this particular view, this historical creationist view, really sort of allows us to reconcile two things what appears to be a very old earth with the Bible's what seems to be quite literal description of six days of creation. That, that if the earth was created in Genesis 1-1, it could have been created four and a half billion years ago. This is why the earth has the appearance of age, right? Or it could have been that God created the earth with that appearance. So that if we had seen Adam and Eve in the garden, we would have seen full-grown man and woman right? They would have looked to us to have been 30 or 40 or 50. This sort of allows and opens up charitable discussion and agreement or disagreement on the age of the earth. But it does that without sacrificing what we see in Genesis 2 or chapter 1 and 2 verse 2 and following, six literal days. Because as you look at the creation on each day, the, the sort of making and the organizing on each day, it seems pretty clear. It says day one, evening and morning. Morning and evening were day two. Morning and evening were day three. That seems to be pretty, pretty clear, 24-hour period, doesn't it? But what he's doing there is preparing the land for day six when he puts Adam and Eve in the garden to fulfill the function. Also helps us with the sort of structure of these six days. You'll notice that the days sort of are parallel. On day one, he does some things with the, with the lights, or, or yeah, the creation of light, let there be light. Day two, he does some things with separating the, the sky from the earth. Day three, he does some things with separating the waters from, from the earth, from the land. And then you notice that that kind of repeats in day four. He creates those things that fill the sky and swarm in the sky. Day five, he creates those things that swarm in the water and so on. Day six, he creates the beast of the land and creates man. And it's long troubled Christians reading this text to say, how is it that you don't get days 
or you get days, but light's not created. Or, or you know, how, how are we putting these things together? Well, notice in day four, it doesn't say that God created the sun and the moon and the stars. He did that earlier, actually. But in day four, verse 14, he says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. In other words, the emphasis there is on the function of the lights, not the creation of the lights, right? And that's what's happening in verses four or, or days four, five, and six. He's giving the function of those things, not the statement of the creation of those things, right? So here's what I think the Bible's presenting to us. And I'm happy for you to come Thursday night and ask all kinds of questions as long as you're happy for me to say, I don't know, right? <laughs> here's what I think the Bible's presenting to us. That God has, in Genesis 1-1, created the entire universe. And he did that on some period that, that isn't defined by the six days in which he is organizing land in preparation for men and women to dwell in it, right? And this is how we can have six literal days of, of creation, or better stated, six days of preparation, and an old earth at the same time. Now, if you're interested to think more about that, read John Salehammer's book, Genesis Unbound. Or if you go to the Desiring God website and type in Salehammer, um, there's a wonderful sort of article interacting with that book and presenting the summary of this. Great, great resources there. And then come Thursday night and we can talk more about this. So, so what, Thabiti? So what? Why does this matter? Let me give you four observations and four questions for application as to why it matters. Number one, everything is created by God's word or by God speaking. You notice there, God said, God said, God said. I, I love this quote. Genesis 1 portrays God's word as the most powerful force in all of creation. God's word brings order, makes things good, creates an environment in which life can exist, separates things, comes with unparalleled authority, and accomplishes exactly what God intends. Therefore, we are not to dismiss, disdain, or distort God's word as it is the source of life. This is theological history. And what we're meant to know about God is that he speaks and his word is powerful. And the question that comes to us this morning is, do we live by God's word? Do we receive it with that kind of reverence and with faith? Do we honor it and obey it as much as inanimate things or animals do? Here's a second observation. Everything has a particular function and role. Each part of creation has an, an assigned role to play, even down to how it reproduces after its kind. The role comes from God's word, and that role cannot be broken without breaking ourselves, without breaking God's rule and his creation. It's interesting to note that, that reproduction is so clearly spelled out here. Each thing reproduces after its kind. Today, we seem to be falling all over ourselves to break God's role and God's rule in this very area. Many of you have probably seen Bruce Jenner and the headlines he's been getting in recent weeks. I don't, I don't mean this as an unkindness to Jenner or an unkindness to anyone who has questions in this area. But isn't he an interesting picture of the confusion that results when we abandon God's design? Here's a man who says he's really a woman. 
but he doesn't like men, he likes women. And here's a man who wants to go through some process of changing his gender and yet relating romantically to the same gender. It's confusion. And he is not to be hated. He's not to be scorned. He's not to be ridiculed. He's to be, he is to be prayed for. He's to be prayed for and to be treated with mercy. Just like those who, who break God's rule heterosexually and, and abuse others heterosexually. They are meant to be prayed for. They are meant to be helped. They are meant to be challenged with the grace of God that they might come back into the order and the rule of things. And so the question for us is, do we live as God intends us to, according to his word? Do we respect his designs for our lives? It's a third observation. You saw this as we read through. I hope you heard this as we read through. After each sort of day, God saw that it was good. That's his, that's his assessment. We see God state this in, in multiple verses. At near the end of verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18 near the end, verse 21, and so on. And when God pronounces something good, he's really giving his blessing to it. He's pronouncing a benediction over it. This is the original benediction of Scripture. God creates, God looks at it, and he speaks good words over it. He saw that it was good which means also that he was pleased by it. Everything God prepared was designed to bless his people. And that's how man is meant to live, in the goodness of God. But again, in our sin, in our fallen world, we distort his good gifts and we make them idols. So Paul, writing in 1 Timothy chapter 6, has to tell Timothy there to teach the church not to run after riches because in doing so, many men have, have pierced themselves and, and many men have come into great sorrow and some have even left the faith because they chase God's good things as if those things were God. And then he comes down in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, and he says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, that's proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but what? On God. And then he describes God this way. Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You see how that works? We put our hopes on God who made all things to be a blessing to us. And in his rich grace, he provides all that we need. Right? And so the question is, do we enjoy God's creation and blessings appropriately? Do we use the goodness of the creation in a way that leads us to trust the good creator? All right? A fourth observation. Man is unique. Unlike anything else in creation, human beings are made, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, in the image and likeness of God. This refers to both male and female. So there is no superior gender. This refers to all persons of every ethnicity. So there is no superiority or inferiority of ethnic groups or ethnic peoples. We are all made in God's image and likeness. And this means that we are all persons who have incredible, inestimable dignity and worth and value. And this is the basis for how we treat one another in everything from capital punishment to common speech. 
So capital punishment. If you want to look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. This is after the flood when God has judged the earth and um, Noah and his sons and their wives are coming back out to repopulate the earth. And God promises in Genesis 9, verse 6, he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, so we're talking about murder, right, killing, whoever sheds the blood of man by man, so that implies some form of government, by man, shall his blood be shed. That's capital punishment, right? And then he gives us the reason. You see it there in the last part of verse 6? For God made man in his own image. We don't kill one another because in doing so, we'd be slaughtering the image of God. We would be defacing the likeness of God. We would be committing a certain kind of blasphemy to harm one another. So, so the image of God has application for government and capital punishment, but it has application for everyday speech too. So we read in James chapter 3 verse 9, that, that challenging chapter where James addresses us about our tongues. And he tells us that we can't control our tongues and, and that our tongues are set on fire by the flames of hell. James says in chapter 3 verse 9, he says, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father and with it, with the tongue, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. He says these two things shouldn't be true. But he appeals to the fact that we're made in the likeness of God in the context of talking about how we talk. What, what, what's the implication? That the fact that you are speaking to someone made in the image of God ought to govern your words. They ought to govern my words. We can't just say anything we'd like to say to another human being because they are not merely creatures. They are image bearers of the Lord our God. So to be in God's image and likeness should shape our justice system and should shape our everyday conversation. And this has pressing application even today, doesn't it? It applies to everything from how we talk about our marriage partners to how we talk about people marching in the streets. It shapes all of human relation because every human being is made in the image and likeness of God and therefore ought to be treated with a certain dignity and respect befitting that reality. So here's the question. What about our speech and our civic participation? Does our speech to others show that we recognize them as being made in the image and likeness of God? And does our participation in government and law and criminal justice, does it show that we approach those tasks thinking about the people that we govern as being made in the image and likeness of God? How old is the earth? We don't know. But the God who created it created us and all things. And because we are made in his image and likeness, that determines how we relate to the earth and to each other. Last two questions quickly. Where is the Garden of Eden? I've long wondered that. Where is this land? What happened to it? Well, look at Genesis 3.24. We'll go back to Genesis 3.24. It tells us that God, after Adam and Eve sinned, he drove out the man 
And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, when I read this as a little boy for the first time, I'm like, where is this angel with the sword guarding? Has anybody seen him? Has anybody survived it? Oh, my goodness, right? Where is the Garden of Eden? Answer, the Garden of Eden is the same place as the promised land spoken of in the Bible. The Garden of Eden is the same place as the promised land spoken of in the Bible. Let me give you two pieces of evidence for that. First of all, the boundaries of the Garden of Eden described in Genesis 2 verses 10 to 14, those are the same boundaries as the promised land promised to Abraham in Genesis 15 verse 18. In Genesis 15, 18, the Bible says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt, which is commonly called Cush, to the river Euphrates. When you look back in Genesis 3, you'll see that those are two of the four border rivers that God gives us in describing the promised land. The borders are the same. Here's the second evidence for why I would say that. The entrance to both the Garden of Eden and the Promised Land is guarded by an angel on the east. When Adam and Eve were cast out, as we saw in Genesis 3.24, again, God guards the, the, the way to the tree of life with a cherubim, with a flaming sword. And keep in mind, they're kicked out to the east, okay? Now come down the Bible generations later to Jacob. Jacob, uh, Genesis chapter 32, you can read this chapter on your own time, but verses 1 and 2 in particular, what's happening there is Jacob is returning to the promised land. The Bible says there in Genesis 32, 1 and 2, from the east. And what happens in Genesis 32? Anybody remember? It meets an angel. He was met there by angels. And before he could go back into that land, he had to wrestle with one. You remember that? And not just Jacob. You remember that um, Joshua. Joshua also encountered the angels when Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 15, when he was coming back into the promised land. What is God showing us here by these angelic encounters? Well, he has marked off the land as holy. And he has cast out of the land anything unholy. And to come back into the land is not simply a matter of traveling east is in fact having to go through God. It's having to come into the land through God. It's no coincidence that the writer of Genesis, Moses, marks the exit of the Garden of Eden and the entrance to the Garden or the Promised Land with an angel to show, I think, that those two things are the same thing biblically. So when God gives the Promised Land to Abram and to Israel and all who would believe, he is in fact restoring humanity to that original purpose and place that he created in the garden. This is the gospel. This is the whole storyline of the Bible. And this is why land becomes so important throughout the whole Bible. You ever wonder, why are they arguing, even down to this day, over this patch of land? Well, it's because God has imbued this land with a kind of symbolic significance of a place that he has prepared for his people. Think about the course of the Bible. God prepares the garden. He places Adam and Eve in the garden. But what happened? They sin and they're kicked out of the garden. Then what happens? Well, God promises the promised land to Abraham. 
and Abraham's offspring. And over the course of time and generations, he brings them into the promised land just as he had promised. But what happens? They get in the promised land and they sin and they rebel against God and they forget God. And what does God do? He kicks them out of the promised land. He sends them to exile after exile. He sends them into the captivity of, of other countries that had been by them kicked out when they took the land. But what does God do? He brings the exiles back. He turns the heart of pagan kings and they free his people and his people come back to the land and they rebuild the temple. They rediscover the law. They reinstitute worship to God. And for a while things are good. But then what happens? They sin and rebel and God destroys the temple. And he sends them into captivity. That's the cycle that goes throughout the Bible until God comes to the land himself and tabernacles in human flesh and lives among the people. And he tells them that you will destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. And they thought he was talking about the stone temple, but he was talking about the temple of his body. And true enough, Jesus Christ was crucified on Calvary's cross and he was buried for three days. But on the third day, he raised the temple He got up from the grave and he ascended to the right hand of the Father on high and he promised that he was going to do what? Prepare a place for us so that where he is, there we would be also together with him. And that promise is kept not in the nation state of Israel in the Middle East. That promise is kept in a new heaven and a new earth where the garden now is turned into a city and all of the people of God who hope in the Lord Jesus Christ dwell there in the presence of God. And in that city is no more sin, no more death, no more crying. There's nothing that corrupts the land. There's nothing that corrupts the people. There is no false worship of idols. All of us will be priests of the most high God dwelling before him face to face. And there is no more day and there is no more night. There is no more sun or moon because the Lamb of God and God himself will be the light of that place. Genesis 1-2 is just the seed that grows up into the great tree of God's kingdom and salvation. We are looking for a city whose foundation is not made with the hands of man, whose foundations are unshakable. We are looking for the city of God, the Zion, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. That's us who will one day meet our groom and forever be with him in glory. Genesis 1 and 2 is the beginning of the book, but the end is oh so good. It's oh so good. And I wonder if you're here this morning, if you have that hope, if you have that desire to live with God, to see him face to face, to enjoy his love, to enjoy his blessing, to be in the place that he prepares for you. That's the hope that God will fulfill. It's a desire that he will satisfy. It's a need that he will fix. And he did it with his son 
For Christ, when he was crucified, was killed for our sin. And when he was raised from the grave, he was raised for our justification. He was raised for our righteousness so that we would be thought of not only as forgiven by God, but also as right with God, as perfect in God's sight. Not because of what we did, but because of what Christ did for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. And God holds out this promise that everyone who believes in Christ and follows Christ will live, will live with him where? he is. We'll live with him, never to be separated from his love. We'll live with him without shame, without guilt, because it's been nailed to the cross, and we'll live with him satisfied for all of eternity. Christ has gone to prepare a place, and he's coming again to bring it for all those who would repent of their sins, turn away from them, and trust in him. Believe in him as their God and their Savior and their salvation. And maybe you're here this morning and you would like to do that. We would like to encourage you. You don't need us. You don't even need to speak out loud. You can right where you're sitting. Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess your sin to him. Ask his forgiveness. Ask him to give you a new heart and a new life and to give you what he promised and believe upon him and you will be saved. But you can talk to us, to me, to Pastor Jeremy, to our brother Andrew, to any of the Christians here. And we'd love to pray with you and encourage you or answer any questions. But do not harden your hearts today. Today is the day of salvation. Do not look for another day when you may have eternity today. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Which brings us to our final question, which we will do in three minutes. What is God's purpose for our lives? Three W's. Number one, that we worship him and him alone. That's what's meant really or alluded to or or foreshadowing in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, where God finishes his work in six days and on the seventh day he rests. That, That pattern of God working six days, resting on the seventh, is the pattern that will shape the life of creation and to shape the life of God's people. So later, God establishes the Sabbath with his people Israel. They are to work on six days, but the seventh day is to be holy, kept only for the Lord. They are to worship the Lord alone on that seventh day. But of course, Israel gets caught up in all the rules about the Sabbath, and they miss the point that the Lord is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's for the enjoyment of God and the experience of his blessings. And that Sabbath is really prophecy. It prophesies another rest, a greater rest. Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, read that sometime. The Sabbath isn't merely a seventh day in a calendar week. The Sabbath is the rest that we enter into when we place our faith in Christ. When we put our faith in Christ, we rest from all of our labors. We rest from any effort to be righteous before God because Christ has become our righteousness. And we enter that rest by faith. We are meant to worship God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's his purpose for our lives. Worship. Number two, work. See that there in Genesis 2, 15 to 17? The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Part of what it means to be a human being is to be productive, to work. This is why we're dissatisfied with our lives when we're unproductive. I mean, for a while, we, we, may, we may act as though we're happy being lazy or being unproductive. And for a while, we may enjoy that. But you ever notice that when you notice yourself in a habit of unproductive living, you are never happy because you weren't made to be unproductive. You were made to create. You were made to produce because you're made in the image and likeness of God. We were made to work. That doesn't mean that all of our work is the same kind of work or things of that sort. Here, he puts Adam in the garden to tend to garden. doesn't mean all of us need to be farmers. But it does mean we all need to be productive because that productivity is also part of our worship of bringing praise to God. And that productivity is balanced by our obedience to God. So verses 16 and 17, there's a tree in the garden that they are not to eat of. God sets limits. He sets limits that we should not transgress. That's true of our work today. It is not proper to work to such an extent that if you're married, you neglect your spouse. It is not proper to work to such an extent that if you are a parent, you neglect your children. Why? Because the Bible has certain commands that we are to love our wives, we are to love our husbands, we are to serve them, that we are not to provoke our children to wrath. And what sometimes makes children angry with their parents, except that they never have access to them because they're always working, right? So even our work is bounded by our worship, by our obedience to God, but we were made to work. A final thing, we're made to worship, we're made to work, we're made to witness Verses 18 to 24. Some of y'all have been waiting on this passage because it's about marriage. Verses 18 to 24. In all of God's creating, there's only one thing that he said was not good. He said, man should not be alone. I love the way I heard Michael Lawrence put this some years back. He says that this means that men are incompetent. that the task that God gave man of subduing the earth and filling it with his glory, he's not adequate to accomplish by himself. So he makes a helper suitable to him, a woman who is equal to him in every way, and yet they have differing and complementary roles. That there's to be the taking normally, but not always, of a wife and a husband. As I said, normally, but not always. Sometimes, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, some are called to singleness. And for as long as you're not married, that's your calling. And Paul exhorts us in 1 Corinthians 7 to fight to really enjoy that calling. I know that's difficult sometimes when you would love to be married. And marriage is obviously a blessing when done according to God's word. It's a good thing to desire. And sometimes that desire can get turned up so high that we do things that are counterproductive spiritually. So Paul could write in 1 Timothy chapter 5 when he talks about the younger widows. He says, I exhort the younger widows to marry because when they don't, they break faith. They they break their first love, their, their first love commitment with God. And there are many single people who desiring marriage too much or with the wrong person or in the wrong time, they break faith with God and find themselves into sin. 
So this good thing, too, is bounded by God's way and God's will expressed in God's word. But normally, we are called to marry, and that's a witness. That's not just a relationship. So in Ephesians chapter 5, those of you who know your Bibles, you will know that Paul says that this very thing that's instituted right here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where God puts two together and no one's to separate them, and the husband and wife become one flesh, that's not something happening that's primarily even about that man and that woman. It's certainly not something that's only about that man and that woman. Paul says in Ephesians 5, what's happening there in the I do's and the joining together in the marriage covenant is a picturing, a portraying of Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. And this is another reason why we want to enter into healthy marriages, not rushed marriages. Because those relationships are part of our witness to the world that Christ really does love his bride and his bride really does honor and respect him. And so you can't do that if you're not married with someone who shares your faith. You can't do that if you're married to someone who doesn't understand these roles. But we do this when we do it under God's word. What's God's purpose for our life? That we worship him alone. That we work to bring him glory. And that we witness, even in human relationships, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. May that be true of all of us as we live as his creatures and bring him glory as creator. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Genesis 1 and 2. We thank you that there are things here that are not easily comprehended. The relationship between the six days of creation and what we observe in our natural world, though they raise and pose questions, we, with the writer of Hebrews, we rejoice that by faith we know you create the world and everything in it. We see here in this text things that are meant to be for our good, but yet are not our experience. Some of us want the good of marriage, and we're having by faith to wait for your provision. Give us grace to do so, and hope to do so, and joy in our singleness as we wait. And some here hope for the blessing of work, productive work, fruitful work, work that makes them feel accomplished and satisfied and as if they have rendered unto you and unto the world a useful service. But they are struggling to find employment or they are working employment that is not joyful. Sustain them. Strengthen them. Oh Lord, whatever they do, let them do it unto you from whom they know they receive their reward. May it be an offering of praise. May it give them joy because they realize they do it for you, even if they don't have joy in what exactly they do. And Lord, we do pray that you would purify our worship, that we would find ourselves able to rest in you, and that we would have this perpetual Sabbath that comes through faith in Christ, and that we would, Lord, Establish this shrine in time, this temporal temple, 
where we, O Lord, regularly, this day of the week, we hallow it, O Lord, in our hearts to you. And rather than pursue vain things, O Lord, passing things, worldly things, we worship you on this day and each day. O Lord, bless us with the good things that you have for us in your word. Bless us with understanding. Bless us with hope. Bless us to live as you have created us to live and bring to yourself praise and glory and honor and majesty now and forevermore. Save those, O Lord, whom you desire to save. Save all, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.